listening to West of Middle East, a podcast about Middle Eastern changemakers living in the West. I'm your host, Niaz Kastravi. In season two, we feature changemakers working in and around the field of education. Be it through traditional academia, technology, the arts, advocacy, or movement building. Each episode shines a spotlight on changemakers doing everything from the ordinary to the extraordinary, humanizing their triumphs and struggles and offering a more real narrative of who they are to counter the often sensationalized and misconceived portrayals of these communities in mainstream media. West of Middle East is produced by the Neda Nobari Foundation, an organization supporting social and environmental justice through the arts and education. It's always said that the U.S. is a nation of immigrants. But in recent decades, anti-immigrant policies and public sentiment have dominated the socio-political discourse in this country. After the election of Donald Trump, immigrants have experienced an increase in negative public perception and legal discrimination, such as the Muslim ban targeting Muslim-majority countries, proposals to build a wall on the U.S.-Mexico border, a spike in hate crimes, and limitations placed on legal immigration and refugee settlement. I sit down with Azadeh Shahshahani, an Iranian-born human rights advocate and lawyer who spent her career protecting the rights of immigrants and marginalized communities in the U.S. and across the globe. Azadeh is the past president of the National Lawyers Guild and is currently the legal advocacy director for Project South, an organization committed to cultivating strong social movements in the southern region of the U.S. to fight back against urgent social, political, and legal problems faced by communities today. Azadeh's dedication to immigrants' rights and protecting Muslim, Middle Eastern, and South Asian communities started when she began to realize a fundamental gap in services accessible to them in the United States. I went to law school to do human rights work, but the conception I had of that work was to be um, placed somewhere you know, outside of the U.S. in Geneva or The Hague and focusing on international human rights uh, issues solely. And then after graduation from law school, uh, we moved to North Carolina, and this is in 2004. So at the height of the post-9-11 um, Islamophobia and crackdown on uh, Muslim communities, and much to my surprise, there was a huge Muslim uh, Middle Eastern and South Asian community in North Carolina. And so I was expecting to find some type of an organization or project to cater to the legal needs of the community. And I didn't find anything. So I thought, OK, maybe I could start something. And so that led me to um, approach the ACLU of North Carolina and propose a project to them to basically help the community with the discrimination that they were facing. So we did a series of Know Your Rights presentations and also put together a network of attorneys to be prepared to respond when the community was being harassed by the FBI, for example, or facing religious discrimination. Then I realized after a year or two of doing that work that that was very much human rights work, the work I was doing with the communities. 
Azadeh's dedication to human rights is connected with her experience growing up in Iran. I always had a passion for human rights. I would say also connected to foreign policy issues because I grew up in Iran. I mean, I was born four days after the revolution and I experienced the Iran-Iraq war, you know, when Tehran was being missile bombed by Saddam, who at the time was getting a lot of support from the U.S. and from the West It was always, you know, very clear to me that basically, you know, these human rights violations were being facilitated by the U.S. government. And so that kind of provoked a passion in me to, you know, help address human rights issues very much connected to U.S. foreign policy. And that still is something that I'm very passionate about today. Her family, however, hasn't always been convinced that this was the right field of work for her. My family being an immigrant family, I think it's probably very common still among immigrant families to go for so-called safe and maybe, you know, more prestigious professions. My family very much wanted me to become a doctor. I actually applied and got into a program from high school at the University of Michigan where basically your place is reserved for you in medical school. And so that was what I was going to do. And, you know, after being in college for two or three years and taking different courses, interacting with different people, becoming involved in organizations such as Amnesty International, I um, realized that my true passion continued to be human rights work. You know, for a while I was thinking, well, maybe I could be a doctor during the day, do human rights work in the evening, and then... After a few years, I realized, who am I doing this for? I am the one who needs to live this life. I need to be happy with myself. So I decided to apply to law school. I only applied to one, and so was lucky to be able to get into Michigan and pursue this very different path. So, you know, my parents, uh, much to their credit, they did not prevent me (laughs) from Going to law school, they probably would have been happier if I had maybe become a doctor and generally had led a more quiet life, you know, under the radar. And that just is not my nature and it's not the nature of my work, but I'm happy with the work I do. Her current job allows Azadeh to draw on her legal skill to truly serve the communities she works with, understanding and then meeting their advocacy needs. Project South is based in Atlanta, and we um, work with communities of color across the South to help build strong social justice movements and to support those movements as well. So we've been around for 31 years and we have grassroots partners across the Southeast. Uh, Once a year, we come together in a forum called the Southern Movement Assembly, where um, people from across the region come and it's an opportunity for us to get together, reflect about the state of the movement and how to propel it forward. And so this past November, it was held in North Carolina in a rural setting that used to be a plantation. And now 
there's a strong black leadership in the area. And so, you know, it meant a lot to have all of these folks come from across the South to lend support. And so organizing, mobilizing the communities, providing trainings. Uh, So one training that we provide is build a movement uh, workshop where folks from my organization basically provide trainings to college students and folks from all walks of life on basic steps to take to build a movement, which again, in this current atmosphere, there's a lot of interest in that. We work a lot with youth, with um, youth of color. We also have an education program, which is community-based, focused on popular education, where folks come together for a semester and pick a topic to focus on. It's called University Sin Fronteras. And then the work that I do with Project South, the legal and advocacy work, uh, which we started in January 2016. And the reason I joined Project South is because I had a lot of respect for the organization politically, how it's connected to the movement. And I very much think of myself as a movement lawyer, that the legal work that I do um, has to be in support of the movement that is led by directly impacted people, and that lawyers are not in charge of leading the movement. Um, We are there to support, which, you know, I think unfortunately um, is a huge challenge still in legal communities. Um, Sometimes, you know, the legal work is kind of very separate from the community work and directly impacted people. It's a true honor and privilege for me to work with an organization where everyone is an organizer, you know, extremely skilled organizers and to be held accountable on a daily basis in terms of, you know, ensuring that my work is actually supported and is is in support also by the movement. Azadeh's work centers around two general areas of educational advocacy, one on immigration issues, and the second on protecting the rights of Muslim communities in America. I work primarily with immigrant and uh, Muslim communities in the South. Part of our work is focused on immigration detention. There are many immigration detention centers in the South. In particular, there are four in Georgia. And conditions are terrible at these facilities in terms of the human rights violations that detained immigrants are facing. So the second largest immigration detention center called the Stewart Detention Center is in Georgia. And it's run by a private corporation, CoreCivic, which used to be called CCA, Corrections Corporation of America. And they changed their name to try to get away from their horrible reputation that didn't help them very much. But very recently, a man, a 27-year-old immigrant, John Carlos Jimenez Joseph, died at the facility. He committed suicide after being placed in solitary for 19 days. We talked about it as a preventable tragedy because, first of all, the facility should have been shut down a long time ago. Second of all, in report after report that we have issued and documentation work that we have done, this is what we have said, that people who are detained at this facility are not receiving the adequate psychological, emotional, and mental health care, and that solitary is being used as a tool of punishment, retaliation, 
retribution and also as a means of basically responding to psychological needs, which is a disaster. So the minute somebody starts talking about you know, their um, psychological and emotional difficulties, which let's remember, we're talking about refugees, we're talking about people who have fled horrible persecution in their home countries, and now they're in a detention center. So of course, people are going to have you know all sorts of emotional, mental health difficulties. The minute they start talking about any of that, instead of providing them the care and the counseling that they need, the facility subjects them to solitary confinement, which of course is going to make everything worse. And you know, there's been many studies done showing that solitary actually deteriorates a person's mental health situation. And so this is the situation at this facility. Immigrants are also subjected to a so-called voluntary work program, which at least in two cases documented recently Two immigrants were put in solitary for refusing to partake in this so-called voluntary work program and for encouraging others to say no to this type of a work program. So basically the corporation is relying on the labor of detained immigrants, exploiting the labor of detained immigrants for running this facility where they would have had to hire regularly waged employees to do so. So that's just on the detention front We also are working a lot with Muslim, Middle Eastern, and South Asian communities across the South to do what we call Know Your Rights, Defend Your Rights presentations. Um, So I pair up with one of our organizers, Manzur Chima, and we go to the various mosques and we do not only the Know Your Rights, but I think even more importantly, how to defend your rights. Because we feel it's not enough for people to just have the knowledge. People should also know that they're not isolated, that there are communities across the South that are similarly facing discrimination, but also fighting back. So how to get connected to folks and how to build a movement to try to fight back and organize to try to fight back and win back our rights. And then we're also working on building a legal infrastructure in the South So we have provided many trainings so far, about um, between 10 to 15 trainings aimed at the local legal community, so lawyers, legal workers, and law students on how to represent Muslim and Middle Eastern South Asian clients when they face discrimination. So what to do if your client has been approached by the FBI, what to do if they're facing religious discrimination, if they're called before a grand jury, all of those issues that um, lawyers need to know about. And so we're hopeful that this legal infrastructure will actually help address the legal needs of the community. And then the last area that I wanted to talk about, we're actively trying to limit collaboration between immigration and customs enforcement and the local police, which unfortunately, um, especially in the South, local police tend to have a close working relationship with ICE. But I'm happy to say that in Georgia, we have had seven localities that have agreed to adopt a policy limiting their collaboration with ICE, which is huge. I mean, it's a really huge victory for us. So the three more recent localities, Atlanta, Decatur, and the city of Clarkston, they agreed to adopt policies in the last year pretty much in a direct response to the Trump administration. She's right. 
it is a big victory, particularly in the South. Ozade's work is generally gratifying for her, but she shares with us some of her proudest moments. I think just continuing to feel that I'm part of the movement, you know, the work is very much part of a larger struggle. So one moment that I, actually a couple of moments that I keep going back to that make me proud of us as a community and very happy is a very large demonstration that we had at the Stewart Detention Center where more than a thousand people from across the country came. I think it was probably the largest protest at any immigration detention center ever in November of 2015, calling for the Stewart Detention Center to be shut down. So that showed that all of this documentation work that we do, you know, the press releases, the work that we do in Georgia is not sort of isolated. That is part of a larger uh, struggle to try to shut this place down as well as other detention centers. And then I keep going back to the airport protests. So when Trump basically signed the executive order, putting into place the first Muslim ban, it was for many of us um, one of the most depressing moments um, maybe of our lives and also very hectic. I remember that Saturday I was probably getting a text, a phone call or an email. I'm not exaggerating when I say one a minute from people who had had relatives at the airport or community members who were concerned or other folks asking how they could support. It was really draining. But a protest was called by a community member, actually not really connected to any organization, but she had read about the folks detained at the airport, our community members who had gone abroad and were on their way back and were now imprisoned at the airport. And she was really outraged. And so she called this protest. And so, you know, I was thinking, okay, I've lived in Atlanta for 10 years now. So I'm going to show up to the airport on Sunday and there may be a couple hundred people, you know, the activists, us, that we see at every protest. And I get there and there are thousands of people. I mean, people just kept coming. People I had never seen in my life. My neighbors came. Just, I think, you know, as a sign of support for for me, for my family. And it was just really heartwarming to see that people are ready to stand up and say no to this administration. It was one of the most beautiful moments in the past year that gives me hope. You know, whenever I am very angry, very depressed about this administration and what it's doing, I keep going back to that moment and I realize that there are people out there who are fed up and they're going to resist. They're not going to allow, you know, what we saw this country has experienced in the past, the acts of, you know, discrimination against people of color. That is not going to happen because people are awake now. Though she sees some impact on her work in the current political climate, especially since the election of Donald Trump, Azadeh doesn't believe that these are problems that simply developed overnight. 
obviously, we as um, immigrants rights advocates, human rights attorneys, you know, we were not taking a break during the Obama administration. Obviously, the record of the Obama administration is very clear in terms of deportations and other types of human rights abuses. But I think definitely um, it's been a huge challenge to try to respond to everything coming out of this administration. And we have seen two of very devoted immigrants' rights leaders are being placed in deportation proceedings, um, Ravi Ragbir being the most recent example, along with you know, thousands of other people who are facing that same situation. Every day you wake up and you're thinking, what else, what am I going to see today from this administration? And also from the localities. You know, we live in Georgia, where the Georgia legislature has been at the forefront of passing anti-immigrant legislation for the past many years. And you could say that they feel even more emboldened now in light of what they're seeing from the federal government. There's nothing holding them back, really. And so it's a lot. It's a lot to face, I think, for us as human rights activists. Really, one of the stronger priorities for us, I think, is to provide support to each other and also take care of ourselves just so that we're not burned out and that we're here for the long haul. Because I think, you know, the movement needs all of us. There's a deep educational value to the work Azadeh does. As I mentioned, we do Know Your Rights and Defend Your Rights presentations targeting Muslim, Middle Eastern, and South Asian communities. But we also have other presentations, the one that I mentioned for lawyers. We also have started doing a presentation, again, targeting the legal community called Movement Lawyering. And that's a presentation, again, that I do jointly with uh, my colleague Manzur Chima, who's one of our organizers. And that's the type of presentation and education that law students still are not receiving. Maybe in you know a couple of law schools that are more devoted to movement lawyering and a different conception of lawyering, such as CUNY and Northeastern, students are receiving that type of education, but not in many more mainstream law schools. And so we have already done this once and we'll be going to Duke in a month to do that presentation and in South Carolina as well. And so we hope that by doing this presentation and hopefully staying in touch with the law students, we will help instill in them a passion. If it doesn't already exist, hopefully it does, but at least, you know, build up on the passion for working with communities and with movements, and again, realizing that as a lawyer, uh, as a social justice lawyer, your work is in the service of the broader community. She sees and is through her work trying to bridge a gap that exists between the legal field and communities who rely on the skills of lawyers. And she sees this gap as often created by the way legal education happens in this country. An obstacle that we face is to try to get lawyers and really institutions. I mean, that's the problem. 
it's the institutions that instill in lawyers and service providers that you're doing the community a charity. This is a service. Um, this is sort of knowledge that only lawyers have for, you know, these other people who may not be educated or, you know, you're basically a charitable organization. So that's sort of maybe a conception that people, some lawyers have still, you know, including people who do pro bono work. And it may be a challenge at first to try to get them to think of their legal work differently. But there are ways to improve the current legal education system, she says. In terms of how current legal education could be augmented by additional information and education, I think a basic training on movement lawyering, social justice lawyering, community lawyering is definitely needed. Also an anti-oppression training for law students is also similarly needed. I know a lot of social justice organizations now have an anti-racism training built into whatever convening that they have. And there are certain law schools such as CUNY that do an anti-oppression training. I think all law schools need to build that into their curriculum. And in terms of the issues that law students need to learn about, especially right now in this area of massive crackdown on Muslim immigrant and people of color communities, just learning how to defend the rights of communities under attack. So the types of continuing legal education seminars that we offer would, I think, be very helpful. I'm intrigued. I asked her to talk a bit more about what movement lawyering means. Movement lawyering means that you as a lawyer or legal worker or law student are using your skills to help advance the movement and that your work is directed by the movement. So you're not dictating how the movement is going to function. The movement, the movement leaders who are community folks hopefully directly impacted people, they are the ones who are going to choose their strategies. They might come to you for legal advice and you should, as a lawyer, competent lawyer, provide that advice to them, but you are not going to try to dictate to them what the strategies they should or should not use. And as a lawyer, you should advocate, obviously, and defend your clients. So in a sense, lawyers who are working for the people, with the people, and led by the people. Azadeh's work and advocacy shines a light on how personal experience, passion, and a commitment to the needs of underserved communities is key to creating systemic change. These are communities subject to constant attack, dehumanization, and prejudice. And supporting their liberation requires that we center their voices, experience, and expertise in our fight for justice. You've been listening to West of Middle East. You can hear more episodes about changemakers from the Middle East diaspora at westofmiddleeast.org or check us out on iTunes. If you like what you heard, please rate us on iTunes. This podcast is created by the Neda Nobari Foundation an organization supporting social and environmental justice through the arts and education. Our engineer is Rick McRae of Conscious Studios. Music is composed by Loga Ramin Torquion and Azam Ali. 
and I'm your host, Niaz Kasravi. If you want to share your thoughts about this podcast or have ideas for future seasons, email us at comments at westofmiddleeast.org. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time.